0: This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.
1: Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of I Know That Face, the only podcast, which honors the often underappreciated by the masses work of character actors. My name is Stephen
0: Porcio. My name is Andrew Carroll.
1: Today we are delving into the career of Hiroyuki Sanada, an actor who has been dubbed the Japanese Harrison Ford. Andrew, would you like to run down his history?
0: Sure thing. Um, Hiroyuki Sanada was born in Tokyo in 1960. He began acting at age 6 as his childhood dream was to become an action star, something he achieved with rapid success after joining Japanese action all-star Sonny Chiba's Japan Action Club, soon becoming Chiba's protégé. He landed several supporting roles in the late 70s alongside his mentor Chiba in Shogun Samurai, GI Samurai and Legend of the Eight Samurai. A lot of Samurai roles as, as you'll see. Uh, his first leading role came in Shogun's Ninja, and he would use this boost to co-lead Hong Kong action films like Ninja in the Dragon's Den and In the Line of Duty, Royal Warriors, the sequel to Yes, Madame, alongside that film star, Michelle Yeoh, friend of the pod. He continued in the Samurai and Martial Arts mode well into the, to, into the 2000s, but it was the iconic Har Ring that made him a known face, in cult circles at least, in the West. His first Hollywood role as Ujio, the Tom Cruise-hating master swordsman, came in The Last Samurai and foreshadowed a sea change in Sanada's career going forward. Senator left martial arts mostly behind in the mid-2000s, putting his efforts into more dramatic roles like The White Countess and Danny Boyle's sci-fi masterpiece Sunshine. He continued to appear in Western finance blockbusters like Speed Racer, The Wolverine, 47 Ronin and Life, as well as dramas like The City of Your Final Destination and Mr. Holmes. 2020 looks to be Senator's year, as the 60-year-old star returns to martial arts action with Mortal Kombat, Zack Snyder's Army of the Dead and David Leach's Bullet Train.
1: What is it about him that you uh, really wanted to, you know, probe his career in more depth? And is it that sort of mix between, you know, the fact that he started off in martial arts and then has gone on to be a real powerhouse in the you know world cinema in like dramatic roles?
0: What struck me about him in Ring is that you know any you talk to anyone about Ring and the first thing they'll tell you is like oh it's about Japanese. Japanese traditions classing with modern society and like that's all well and good when you're in college but it's very boring it's a very boring way to talk about a, one of the scariest horror films ever made and I think Sanada Sanada I think as well as every other actor in the film but him especially is kind of um, underrated um, as as an actor when it comes to their role in that movie uh, I think I just wanted to highlight how good he is at kind of pretty much everything because if you read his Wikipedia page, you'll see he started acting at age six. He he's a singer. He has some great stage work uh, up to the two thousands. I don't think he does does it anymore, but he can he can fight as his earlier films and his movies coming out this year will testify to. So he can he can basically do it all. He's a real workhorse.
1: Because he's worked in TV with people like, you know, Jonathan Nolan and Lisa Joy and Westworld and he's in Lost, uh, you know, with Damon Lindelof. He's worked with interesting directors like Danny Boyle, James Mangold, the Wachowskis, James Ivory. You know, I think oftentimes when a a non-American just blows up in their own country, Hollywood comes knocking and oftentimes Hollywood doesn't really know what to do with that actor or to make them their best and, you know, it can take a while for them to connect with audiences, particularly when, you know, they're working in their second language. And the example I always cite is, like, Antonio Banderas made some really good Hollywood movies, but, like, they don't compare anywhere close to, you know, Pain and Glory or The Skin I Live In, the stuff he did with Al- Almodovar. Absolutely but, not. like,
0: yeah.
1: yeah, Sonata he's a very solid Hollywood career. A lot of the movies that I, I watch for, all the movies I watch for this are, like, good to great and, you know, I'm not even talking about Sunshine or Last Summer, which I'm already on the record as really digging. And uh, my th- yeah. I th- my main problem, I think, with Sonata, I, was, I wish he got more substantial roles in Hollywood. But even the ones, the little roles that he does, like, his whole thing is just adding a little more weight or emotional heft to characters that don't really have it on the page. And, like, we're going to see that in yeah. Life and in Mr. Holmes and in um, The Wolverine and things like that that we're going to mm. talk about. So, um, yeah, do you want to go jump right into it with uh, Ninja and the Dragons then?
0: Sure. So, this is available for free on YouTube, by the way, if anyone uh, wants to watch it after after we've discussed it. So, uh, Sanada plays Jinbu, a ninja who flees Japan with his wife Akane, in order to get revenge on the man he believes is responsible for his father's murder. Uh, this draws him into acrobatic slapstick combat with local art, martial artist Sun Jing, after the man uh, he's after revenge on has been revealed to be Sun Jing's mentor. And eventually, he uh, Jinbu and Sun Jing will team up to fight an ancient Chinese magician, because, you know, Hong Kong movies, man. <laughs> So it begins as kind of your standard Samurai B movie like Lone Wolf and Cub before it kind of transitions into a drunken master type riff on early Jackie Chan movies uh, only to change again into a Kung Fu versus Ninjutsu grudge match before at last settling on a team up between the two. And it's a film of like constantly shifting tones from like intense melodrama to really incredibly choreographed action to some of the lowest of the lowbrow comedy because Sun Jing has a sex obsessed stem a servant called charlie who's always caught reading porn i don't know how where you'd find porn in 12th century china but listen Mm -hmm. um and you know the movie ends with a big brawl and with sun jing and jinbu on one side and this chinese magician and all his weird acolytes on the other and the he's eventually beaten by charlie flashing um jinbu's wife akane's chest at at him and uh your man bursts into flames because he's uh, the martial art he uses is um, too pure to be um, to ever come into contact with anything sexual, and Charlie just goes. Well, you might have the strength and you might have the wits, but nothing beats a great pair of tits, uh, which is re- really funny because all these movies in the Wu Tang collection, which is a collection of martial arts movies on YouTube that you can watch, they're all dubbed in these really really. You, if you've seen a dubbed movie, you know what I'm talking yeah. about. <laughs> And there's some really incredible fight scenes, like the and Conan Lee, who plays Sun Jing, really impresses initially because uh, he's at, his first fight scene is on stilts against a group of people dressed as ancient Chinese gods. Um, and uh, but I think Lee's problem is that he looks way too much like Jackie Chan, so you're expecting you're expecting him to hit the high bar, and he never quite does. Um, whereas with Sanada, I had no expectations and. The man who expects nothing will never be disappointed, but will be occasionally surprised. And I was really surprised with this, because he pulls off some this incredibly uh, athletic, amazing display of acrobatics, kung fu and ninjutsu. And what's more, he's the real main character. That he's, obsessed, he's obsessed with revenge, but he also like can't wait to escape the trappings of the ninja lifestyle. And the life of a ninja is obviously cheap. So um, he's just looking forward to escaping to rural China with his wife after um, this um, revenge mission of his is over and i think it's him sanada is, is like escaping from you know his mentor sonny Chiba's shadow you know and um, because he could have he could have spent years more doing um, the samurai films like gi samurai or legend of the eight samurai with sonny Chiba. but um, i think it's you know quite a brave and daring thing to do to try and make your own way especially in hong kong which is known for like 20 hour work days and Plots that just don't make sense to the actors, never mind the director.
1: Yeah. I just think it's crazy that Sonata started off an acolyte of someone like Sonny Chiba and then went on to kind of carve this, like, career that has almost nothing to do with martial arts. Like, (laughs) that he can be in, like, two James Ivory movies or it can be in, like, Mr. Holmes, which is a very serious adult drama and it has no fighting in Mm. it whatsoever. And, um, yeah, so it's like if Jackie Chan did that or you know eco ways we'd be like spinning our heads but like, i think because sanada was less known for that in the west we don't really think about that but it, it's crazy like he's so yeah. versatile
0: well uh yeah a part of it is the fact that we just didn't know who he was until um the last samurai came along and another part of it i think is that he just has this incredibly expressive face that looks a bit more lined and he's kept a beard since i think the last samurai at least when you look at him you're like all right now things are getting serious
1: <laughs> ninja and the dragons then came out in the 70s right and like sanada i i always thought of as being late 30s maybe mid 40s and but he's 60 and like mm. he's been acting for yeah. what's it five decades like four or like five 54 years it's, yeah uh, mental he's so hot <laughs> he is the japanese that's, that's, actually,
0: that's actually the real reason i wanted to do this because he's just so handsome he's probably yeah. i think he's probably the most handsome person we've put on this podcast
1: there's a there's an argument for it um mm. definitely will we talk about ringu and i, I would say yeah. just before we discuss it that andrew you've written extensively about the ring on head stuff not only like you wrote about japanese horror but i think you you also wrote about the american remake of the ring um yeah. but we're talking about the both great uh, movies both great movies but we're talking about the original japanese one here and um yeah do you want to break down the puck because you're you're a massive fan i know
0: Sure. Um, so, Sanada plays Ryuji Takeyama, who is the ex-husband of Reiko, um, who is played by Nanako and Matsushima, who um, discovers the cursed videotape that, um, upon watching, viewers receive a phone call uh, that tells them they will die within seven days. Uh, he's also the father to their son, Yuichi, and he's the first person Reiko shows the cursed videotape to, and he decides to help her track down the origin of the curse as much to save himself as to, can, as to help Reiko. The first thing anyone will tell you about Ring is that it's a film about a woman who has totally failed at a work-life balance and how the kind of traditional role of motherhood and women in Japan is being kind of broken down by Japan's entrance into a new millennium and a more Americanized kind of century and with uh, more Western liberal values uh, coming into the country. But I suppose if you take it from Sanada's perspective... Or Ryuji's perspective, even it's a film about an ex-husband who is pretty sick of this woman's shit by the time the film starts, <laughs> and he is basically checked out of the, the lives of his wife and son, and um, which is kind of like you know in Japan it's often seen as the mother's responsibility to raise children, uh, so he's manifesting one side of the traditional Japanese patriarchy. The film um, is so eager to represent in various various different forms, and um, so where Reiko uses the death of her niece, and. Um, as a result of watching um, Sadako, the ghost, on the tape in the film, Reiko's niece dies and she attends the funeral and is kind of looking for a scoop on the on the cursed videotape. Whereas Ryu- Ryuji's job as a university professor has basically nothing to do with their search for Sadako's origins and the only thing really connecting him to ghosts or the supernatural is this uh, weirdly poorly explained ability to um, kind of sense things and stuff. Like, he'll walk into a room at some stage, hmm, there's something odd in here. Or he'll uh, throw away... There'll be a throwaway line where he's like, you know, I have some psych- um, psychological abilities myself or whatever. Psychic abilities, even. Just in terms of character and the relationship between Rico and Ryuji, I think their separation is never fully explained or even really mentioned. I think this is one of the film things that um, Japanese horror cinema does well in that it's like shows you two people and... You can tell there's a history between them by the way the actors act around each other but it'll never be explained through dialogue really and um, un- until way later in the movie maybe if even at all and and it's clear that they're both pretty devoted to their work like you know reiko's always you know um, failing to collect her son from school uh, whereas viyugi has like a blackboard set up in his living room where he uh, puzzles, out, puzzles out stuff so it's obviously obvious that they're both pretty devoted to their work and generally seem to prefer it to raising a child. So I think even though the men of the film represent a lot of the worst things about Japanese society's treatment of women, Reiko herself is no hero, and Ryuji's efforts to help her are not totally selfless. At least they're coming from a good place. We're entering spoiler territory here. Ryuji's death scene, it's the one of Sadako crawling out of the TV. I think it's one of the few scenes that, even when even when you first see it as like a parody in Scary Movie 3 or something, like, which is where, how I originally uh, came 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 to the ring. I think its origin point remains terrifying, and I think that's the mark of a tr- of a true classic. That you, know, you can parody it, parody it or copy it however much you like, and do as many sequels as you want, um, but you'll never reach the highs of the original.
1: Yeah, and like Sinan himself in that scene is really good. Like his kind of scream and the the look he gives, because it literally ends just on his face. We don't see any carnage; it's just his. Intense terror, and then it just yeah. the screen like fades to black or no, like it, mm. it turns black and white and then cuts really scary. And all you need is just Insanata's expression, which I like. I will say, I'm not a big fan of the lead performance in the Japanese version of The Ring
0: because, no. yeah, it's not Naomi Watts,
1: it's because it's not Naomi Watts, obviously. Like, <laughs> I think she, um. Steals the other woman's lunch money and gives her a wedgie. Mm. Uh, she's so good, <laughs> but um, I think I think that maybe just there is a disconnect between the way the character is written and the performance. Where you read that the, the character is, you know, she's been divorced, she's a, a single mom, she's like this person, very devoted to her journalist job, and the fact that she she just doesn't even give a second thought about watching this tape, which is re- widely reported that it kills people, just because she's mm. like, you know, gotta get the scoop.
0: Yeah, and
1: yeah. but the performance itself is very youthful and very energetic and wide-eyed and wet behind the ears, where she's always questioning what she's doing and being like, "Oh, I'm not sure if I should do this." There's a part where they're very close to removing the curse, and she is like, "Oh, do we have to do this?" You know, and you're a bit like, "Come on, you know." So, yeah. but b- what I'm trying to say is, I'm not surprised that sonata is the person who popped from Ring because he's like, yeah, even though he's like, he's not the main character, he's not the most iconic part of the movie because that's the Sadako look. But yeah. like he's doing so much in just like a quiet, supporting role because from the first moment we see him about 30 or 40 minutes into the film, like he manages to be so brooding and intense, but never in a scary way, but in a more contemplative, haunted, I've seen things kind of way, yeah, which makes yeah. sense given what we later learn about him and his ESP, which is, as you said, like the part of the movie where the plot doesn't make much sense. But Sonata's integrity sells it and makes it yeah. kind of interesting. And... You know, while Sonata is like so emotionalist on the surface, and very stoic, and you know, I get why Damon Lindelof called him the Japanese Harrison Ford because he's he's like Ford or Clint Eastwood in the movie because he seems to fear nothing. Yeah, but he finds these pockets of humor and emotion in the character, like the thing he says to the captain who takes them on the boat into the storm, like the guy felt bad about what his community did to Sadako and is like maybe today is the day she'll get her revenge. And then after the storm passes, Sonata cheekily says something to him like. I guess she doesn't want you dead. (laughs) Any funny line. And it's so funny, especially because the whole movie he's been like just so intense. Or You know, the moment when the main character like thinks any efforts of stopping the tape's curse are futile and he's like, you have to try for a son. Um, He's great in those moments and he doesn't overdo them because he seems to know that because he's so quiet throughout the movie that those little moments feel as noteworthy as, you know, the Al Pacino Hank Azaria scene in Heat. (laughs) You know, (laughs) that's a weird example, but you know what I mean? I get you, yeah. Yeah, as I said, like, I think that scene at the end where Sonata is being attacked by Sadako, like, it's scarier than if he actually got disemboweled because his acting is so good because, like, your imagination fills it in. It, like, asks the audience to fill in the gaps that you don't see.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree
1: you want to talk about The Last summer? we talked on the show before I think in our Oscar episode about the fact that when Hollywood reaches out to foreign actors it's usually because the plot of the movie specifically demands it whether it's focusing mm. on an international crew of astronauts and you need a crew which represents the world or it's a spy story that goes to all these different uh, countries and has global ramifications like a Bond flick or more simply the movies about Americans or English people in another part of the world and I think these things are what's kept Sonata so busy in Hollywood would, uh, and specifically the last one because it applies to what you're going to talk about next the last mm. summer and then the next two movies I want to talk about so yeah do you want to yeah. talk, we can hit it a little bit just I know we've talked about it on the show before
0: yeah and um, so Sanada plays Ujio who's a loyal soldier of Lord Moritsugu Katsumoto okay it was played by Ken Watanabe friend of the pod uh, he has an intense hatred for the captured ca- American captain Nathan Algren who's played by Tom Cruise which eventually turns to grudging respect after he teaches uh, the American soldiers to sword fight so I've said this before but I just want to shout out to Sanada's wig in this movie again maybe that man should be doing L'Oreal commercials for how lush his hair is. I think this is one of the few chances he got into as he was moving forward into um, kind of Hollywood movies. In that he got to use his like very acrobatic martial arts training, and as an actor who's been working since the age of six, is like he knows that he can shine in a fight scene, uh, provided the director is competent in directing it and you know as a journeyman of the tom cruise variety edwards bick is very competent at directing action scenes every fight scene that he's in is very much improved for his presence in it and the fact that he's shot through the lower chest during the final battle and just shrugs off any help and gets back on his horse and charges in again uh, says all you need to know about the character there's a, I think there's a scene, it's about just as they're getting ready, they're training Tom Cruise in, you know, Japanese culture and sword fighting and they start betting on how many moves uh, Ujo will beat Algren in uh, before moving on to who will win. And I think that's little scene of this, just the two guys trading coins between each other is almost as funny as when Tom Cruise is, you know, turns to his bodyguard and goes, you a ladies man, Bob? and um, I think what's funny is
1: that obviously you know a bit more about this than I would but you know the samurai went from being this very respected symbol in Japanese culture and then as Japanese society moved on and became more modern they were the role became futile and useless, and then they mm. sort of became poor and poor as they went on. Like it wasn't a good type of living anymore, and that's kind of what the last samurai is about. But it's almost like you could track that change throughout Senada's career as well, because he started off doing these movies about samurais, like as you said, and yeah. then he was in a movie called The Twilight Samurai, which was another one, which was a big break for him, which was about a, a samurai, you know, at that time. When like it's not like a good profession anymore, it's not respected in society. So he mm. was in the Twilight Samurai, and then he was in the Last Samurai. So he's really tracked <laughs> you know, the progression of samurais. Yeah, uh, I just thought that was funny. I love the Wolverine. Yeah, I rewatched it for this, so I want to talk about it. And it's it's another example of a movie where Hollywood goes to Japan. Where's Mariko? She's gone. That viper bitch took her. It was my father's obsession. <laughs> Mutation and God's mistake, like you and her, that ruined this house. Yeah, I forgot how good this movie is. It's from James Mangold, who is kind of a journeyman, but also sort of an auteur. Like when he mm. when he makes movies about troubled gruff but also sensitive men that have a kind of western vibe, like Copland or Logan or Ford V. Ferrari or even his Johnny Cash biopic Walk the Line. He's so on the money. They're they're so great in a traditional Hollywood way. They're very confident, they're very emotional, they don't drag, everything hits at exactly the right time. But he also makes these weird bizfires, like Identity, that uh, Agatha Christie-inspired Murder Mystery, which has the type of twist that Charlie Kaufman has slagged off in two different movies. <laughs> and he also made Night and Day, which is that kind of rare Tom Cruise movie that just does not exist. Has <laughs> like mm. no cultural impact, and they just feel like real paycheck movies. But I think what's really interesting about The Wolverine is that it's more akin to Mangold's Western-inspired movies, except this time it's an Eastern, you know, instead of gunfights, you know, it's samurai duels, and there's a strain of movie fan out there who really only watches Marvel movies, and says things like, oh, WandaVision, it's so experimental, but they haven't seen, like, a David Lynch movie, or they haven't watched Legion, or Watchmen, which are way weirder, or they see, like, The Winter Soldier, and they're like, oh, it's like a 70s paranoid American thriller, and you're like, no, it isn't. You know, they cast Robert Redford, (laughs) Robert Redford's in the movie, and, like, there's one line about privacy but like it has the same jokey tone of any marvel movie and it ends with shit falling from the sky and it just teases more movies but i say this because revisiting the wolverine like aside from maybe the climax which is more heightened and silly but for a good 90 minutes like this is the yakuza like this is hugh jackman is robert mitchum the the gaijin the stranger of the strange land who becomes embroiled in a feud in this rich culture he does not understand and it begins with Hugh Jackman's Wolverine having uh, given up being a superhero and living off the grid. Uh, he thinks everything he loves dies after he was forced to kill his love, Jean Grey, after she went evil in the X-Men movies, the whole backstory there. Mm. And he, he's feeling the burden of his immortality and basically wants to die. And he's approached by a female bodyguard who can see people's deaths named Yukio, who's played by uh, Rila Fukushima, who I I don't know, but is just incredible in this movie. The fact that she never returned to the franchise is probably why uh, the Fox X-Men does not exist anymore. (laughs) Um, So she she works for this old billionaire who Wolverine saved from the atomic bombing in Nagasaki by putting him in a well and using his body as a shield which we see in a flashback and it's just like an amazing sequence <laughs> and um, she says the old man is dying and wants to give him a present which is a samurai blade called the separator because it separates people's limbs from their bodies another cool another cool bit so yeah. he goes over to Japan with Yukio and meets the old man and the old man thanks him but also says like i've worked out a way for you to transfer your immortality over to me and you can live an ordinary life or just die whatever you want and Wolverine considers it but says no but he you know he's thinking about it and later the old man dies and Wolverine ends up having to save the old man's granddaughter played by Toe Akimoto who you've seen in like Hannibal and like other Hollywood movies uh, from yakuza gangsters and ninjas samurais when she unexpectedly inherits her grandfather's business and his rivals and other family members wanted and at the same time since wolverine's been in japan he seems to be healing less quick almost like his immortality is fading and just in terms of like its setting its iconography there's an amazing action set piece uh set in a bullet train it's existential themes like that idea of you know what's the point of living if your whole raison d'etre was to be a soldier and you have no cause or no body to fight for and like multiple characters refer to wolverine in this film as a ronin you know the samurai without a master without a purpose and The whole movie is about Wolverine uh, refining his place in the world in uh, protecting this lady, Mariko. And not only is that like a logical place to take that iconic character and to start asking like big questions about like what's the drawback of being a superhero, it just feels a lot more rich and a lot more specific and more tangible than your typical blockbuster. It's not like, oh, we just picked up a fake. Middle Eastern country and just dropped it, <laughs> and like millions of people died. But who who cares? Yeah, it, you know, yeah. And Sonata is great in this and like sneakily manages to leave quite a big impression despite being only the most, third most important villain behind. There's a, the Viper, who is like this lizard like lady who steals Wolverine's power, and then there's the big baddie, which is kind of a twist. But uh, that's what that's the segment where the movie gets a little more stupid. But Sonata is the old man's son and Mariko's father, and was essentially trying to kill his own daughter so he'd inherit the company. Uh, what I like about Sonata in this movie is that he manages to be quite ruthless and imposing, but also quite pathetic. Like, we see seen him for the first time, he's practicing kendo sword fighting, which also, another movie which gives him a little bit of a chance to show off his kind of action prowess. He has this big fight with Wolverine, and he feels, for a little bit at least, kind of physically threatening. And um, I imagine Sonata did a lot of his own action stuff, considering his background, I, and I think it's probably why you hire him for such a small part. But he has, like, one or two cool moments where the audience watching at home is thinking, like, I can't wait for you to die, you jerk! <laughs> you know, it's it's that perfect character thing. He doesn't like Yukio, the bodyguard I mentioned, um, who worked for his father and was Mariko's only friend growing up. And in some scene where he's telling her to butt out of family business, he says, "You are a toy doll, a companion for a child who has outgrown you. Keep that in mind." Which is another example of a movie being a bit more evocative than your usual blockbuster. Like, do you think like the kids who are like ten watching it being, oh, that's really kind of like an interesting symbolic thing he just said or like they're just like when is wolverine gonna like slash people and in another wolverine comes over to pay his respects you know after his father died and he asks wolverine like why do you think my father sent you and wolverine says you know to say goodbye and he replies and now you have time for you to go back to your cave like all his lines are really cunning and are delivered with the sharpness of that separator sword I mentioned earlier (laughs) and um, but he's also pathetic because behind all this power and threats and efforts to you know kill people like he's just a guy with major daddy issues which Mm -hmm. you know lead him to nearly kill his own daughter and the movie really punishes him for it like he he basically dies three times like (laughs) you think he dies when Viper um, poisons him You, you think he's dead but he comes back and it's a bit of a surprise and then the second time he duels Wolverine who has just learned why he wasn't healing and is getting better as he's fighting him. And Wolverine defeats him but spares him saying like, you should live with the shame of what you tried to do like what you did to your daughter. And you think yeah. that's the end, but either out of sheer madness or because at that stage he just wants to die, he runs at Wolverine just as Hugh Jackman's back to full power and Wolverine guts him with his claws and as he's dying, Sanada asks like, with his like dying breath, like, what kind of monster are you? And Hugh Jackman with all the clenched intensity he can muster says, like, the Wolverine! And that's when we know he's <laughs> back, baby. And it's just so good. It's so yeah. just, you know, everything you want and it's just, oh, I love it. I love it so much. And I feel like it's a movie that has kind of been a little bit forgotten because it came yeah, I agree. between X-Men Origins Wolverine, and which is the movie everyone hates, which is really bad. And Logan, which was the movie that was sort of, I think, maybe melded the maturity that this movie has with a more... Sort of conventional blockbuster and like maybe it hit that kind of precise thing a bit
0: better but yeah the Wolverine is excellent too I think I watched it for the first time maybe during lockdown uh, towards the start of lockdown anyway but um, I had seen Logan before I had seen this so I was kind of stuck comparing it to that but I do agree I think it is um, definitely one of the best I think, I think Logan was definitely the bullet to the skull of the x-Men franchise just in terms of how good it was and no one can really reach those heights again maybe in all of superhero cinema Um, but uh the wolverine was definitely then was definitely james mangold cocking the hammer
1: yeah calling his shot being like mm. look this is what i could do yeah uh, which i love and then another um partly hollywood goes to asia kind of movie is uh mr holmes and mm. It's also a bit like The Wolverine. It's it's one of those movies which only really works as a response to having already spent years with an iconic character so that you can do something interesting and different with him and maybe take him yeah. out of his you know comfort zone. So I think Ian McKellen in a beautiful performance which really finds the sadness in the character with all the other versions gesture towards but never fully explore. He plays Sherlock Holmes when he's 93 and his memory is beginning to fail him. He's long retired and is living in... A cottage in the British countryside with the housekeeper played by Laura Linney and her son who seems to be a little Sherlock Holmes in waiting and he and the little boy do beekeeping together and harvest royal jelly which is apparently good for the mind good for kind of staving off dementia and the movie flashes backwards and forwards but it essentially posits that Sherlock Holmes was real but the stories about him that we all know were written by Watson and made little embellishments to raise the myth of the two men and the movie has some Sherlock Holmes is
0: real and he's my friend (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> like The movie ha- the movie has some fun with that. Like They did work on Baker Street, but it was a different number than the stories because they didn't want to be hounded by tourists. Stuff like that. Um, anyway, as an old man, Holmes goes to see a film based on one of these Holmes stories. And while watching, he remembers the mystery and that it was his final case, but the movie ending is wrong. He doesn't recall what happened, but he knows the outcome was so bad that it made him want to stop being a sleuth. So he sets to write his side of the story before he dies, even though he, he can't quite remember all the details. And to do that, he thinks he needs this uh, prickly jelly, or uh, prickly ash. It's a, it's a plant that allegedly has even better mind-healing properties than royal jelly, but is native only to Japan. And to do that, he reaches out to an admirer of his named Tamiki, played by Sanada, who lives in Japan and says he can hook him up. So he goes to visit him. And we see that in flashbacks. I just On, on the movie itself, like I think what's really interesting is that after the Guy Ritchie Sherlock Holmes movies or the Cumberbatch series, like those movies are all about the mystery, you know, the crime. It's external stuff, whereas in Mister Holmes, it's more internal. It's it's questions about humanity. It's a it's a man at the end of life reflecting on the nature of humans and his own failings and what he could have done better. And Holmes is a great character for this because he's so intelligent and charismatic, but those qualities are what distance himself from others and make him kind of a dick. You know, he's he's always like, oh, I'm so past, and oh, people are so predictable because I'm so intelligent. And you know, this movie's made it up of essentially three mysteries: like, what was my final case and what went wrong what's killing my bees he keeps finding dead bees but it's also like why do we keep cutting back to this japanese visit with Sonata? and eventually we come to learn that sanada's character had ulterior motives for wanting to meet holmes and uh, this is another way the movie differs from other holmes adaptions because i think in a more traditional version of this story sanada's character would be a mysterious foreign villain who had lured holmes to japan under a false pretense for some complicated revenge plot. whereas here like holmes calls him out like you know in like a casual conversation he's like he picks up on a lie, Sonata's character Tamiki, who uh, throughout the movie seemed very kind and helpful, told him. And Sonata right away is like, you got me. And I won't spoil the reasons why he wanted to meet Holmes, because people should go watch the movie. But it's, it's not revenge, it's like closure he's looking for after something very traumatic happened to him, which has a, a tangential link to Holmes. And it's a beautifully acted scene by Sonata because he's trying to keep like a stiff upper lip in a way which feels uniquely British, which is sort of the key to the mystery itself. And also sort of gives him a, a kinship with Holmes. But you can tell he's shook counting the tale and what happened to him and is maybe on the verge of tears. Like he's breathing a little heavy. He's trembling slightly. His voice keeps changing. And again, it's another mystery of the heart, you know, rather than the mind. He's kind of asking Holmes, why did this happen to me? Can you give me the answers? And, and Holmes can't because it's not a... It was the butcher, you know, with the fire stick kind of mystery. You know, it's, it's a why do humans do what they do kind of mystery. I think what's cool about the screenplay is that the questions the mysteries, answers raise and the actions they inspire in others cause Holmes to reflect more on his own life and you know why didn't I tell Watson I loved him when, he, when I could why was I like, so concerned with solving cases but I never thought about like the real life people caught up in them I made such a big fuss of exposing the truth but maybe there are times when the mystery is better and by probing these things and looking inward like Holmes manages to find uh, some sort of peace by the film's ending which is really powerful and like is a callback to another scene McKellen shared with Sonata earlier in the movie and you know, I, I just think, like, Mr. Holmes is, like, a perfect meta take on Sherlock Holmes in that it makes you like the character more while also challenging him and everything he stood for. And, like, that end result is like, really intellectually and emotionally stimulating in a way which a lot of um, other mainstream movies aren't. As you heard in the intro, this show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest network of independent podcasts. There's plenty of other great shows to check out on the network. Here's a taster of one.
0: I'm Gerold Farrelly, and I'm the host of Fascinated. Have you ever wondered about the pop bands you liked as a teenager? What went on behind the scenes?
1: We had played this, like, grand prank. sounds terrible, but I'm just so relieved it's over. And then they had this, like, great idea of getting another girl in who looked like Heavenly. What
0: did they do afterwards?
1: And all of a sudden, you're like, that's the end of that. It
0: was all blowing up, when it all kind of just
1: unraveled. And I thought it would last forever
0: and it didn't. Check out Fascinated with me, Gerald Farrelly on the Headstuff Podcast Network.
1: I Know That Face are also delighted to finally get to tell listeners about Headstuff Plus. Headstuff Plus is the one stop shop for everything on the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest podcast network and the one to which I Know That Face belongs. If you're a fan of I Know That Face or any other shows on the network, become a member of Headstuff Plus and get bonus episodes of Headstuff shows, other exclusive content, merchandise, early access to live events, and lots more. We here at I Know The Face have already recorded a handful of bonus episodes, where myself and Andrew talk about more current news and releases in the world of film and TV. But also in the future, we have plans for more actor-themed series as well, along with releasing episode outtakes, accompanying articles, etc., all for Headstuff Plus subscribers. To sign up to Headstuff Plus, it's just €5 plus fat per month, When you sign up, no matter what show or shows you are supporting, you still get access to everything. All the bonus material for all the podcasts on the network. A lot of great podcasts. Plus, by doing so, you'll be supporting I Know The Face to bring you more top material. For all the details and to sign up, visit headstuffpodcasts.com. And now, back to the show. We mentioned another reason, you know, you you get an international actor to be in your cast is you go to space. Because space is like, you need someone from each corner of the world to represent the Earth. So do you want to hit sunshine first?
0: Sure. Um, so Sanada plays Canada, uh, who is the captain of the Icarus II, a ship carrying a massive nuclear payload designed to reignite the Earth's sun, which is cooling down and freezing Earth. Um, he, makes the, he makes the decision to divert the Icarus II around Mercury, around Mercury to retrieve the payload of the Icarus I, uh, the, sh- the first ship that was sent on the mission and was lost. Uh, this endangers the mission and, by proxy, the fate of all mankind. I think what's important about Canada in this is that he's one of the few main who's char- one of the few characters um, who isn't an out and out weirdo and remains generally cool, calm, and collected <laughs> right up to when he's flash roasted by the sun. And just by virtue of being the coolest, most un- uncomplicated character of the bunch, uh, normally this would make him the lamest, considering how strange everyone else is. But it's the control his presence has that makes the team work together. And it's, kind of, and it's his death that's kind of, the, kind of the turning point of the movie that signals that things are about to go very, very wrong. The solar wind breathing is much higher than we'd anticipated at this distance. For the moment we can still send package messages back. High frequency bursts will rise above
1: the interference and the moon stations will be able to pick them up.
0: But it's possible
1: that within 24 hours we won't be able to communicate at all.
0: Possible. Probable We'll finally be on our own We're 55 million miles from Earth. I'd say we're already on our own Come on guys. We were expecting this no great drama. We are flying into the dead zone seven days sooner than we thought But if any of you are planning on sending a final message home you Should do it now So, you know the, the decision to divert to pick up the payload of the Icarus one and um, causes the computer systems engineer Trey, who's played by Benedict Wong, to basically uh, have to recalculate the trajectory, and that ends up burning up the oxygen garden and they lose communication. Uh, so, Canada and Robert Kappa, played by Killian Murphy, have to go out and fix the mirrors that were damaged um, in the turn. Towards the Icarus One, and this is like this is the, that's the end for Canada basically, um, and he's the first character to kind of face the cosmic scale and power and horror of the sun as this massive tidal wa- tidal wall of fire just comes towards him because he sends um, Robert Kappa back to, because um, he's the only one that knows how to activate the payload, and I think at this point at that point in the movie it kind of makes sense that this is the one point because. Out of the cast of characters, Canada is like the the one that, alongside Robert Kappa and maybe Mace, who's um, Chris Evans, knows um the kind of scale and enormity of their mission. Uh, Trey and their assist the assistant officer. I can't remember his name. He looks like David Schwimmer. I think they're you know kind of unaware or like they know they're not the that they're important, but whether they make it back to. Canada and Kappa and Mace and Rose Byrne's character and maybe even Michelle Yeoh's character know that they're important to the mission but that's the only thing they're important to you know it doesn't matter if they make it back to earth or not all that me all, that, all they have to do is launch the bomb into the sun and whether they survive doing that or not is irrelevant and um, whereas to Trey and the David Schwimmer looking guy and um, whoever he is um, they're still the main characters in this story to themselves and that's how things go badly because they believe that um, they don't understand the enormity of the mission. Whereas someone like Canada does, cause he's trained for this his whole life. Cause he's the commander of a spaceship. He's an astronaut. And the point where he is coming face to face with the, you know, the sheer power and ferocity of the sun. I think it makes sense that at that point, that's probably the only point where he would like his mind would snap. And just before his body does. Because I think he's prefer- prepared for every ev- you're prepared for every eventuality um, when you've trained as someone like Canada has. But when you're faced with the like the enormity of what's about to happen to you, you go go oh well, no other choice now. May as well go insane. Um, whereas it takes a lot less to break um, several of the other crew members, like the oxygen garden burning up, or the miscalculated trajectory, or the thought of um, not getting a spacesuit when you think you should. He was probably maybe the only character capable enough. Uh, or at least have sound enough mind to be able to face down um, the villain of the, the true villain of the story, Pinbacker, which is why he has to die.
1: No, when he is removed from the equation, it all goes wrong, mm-hmm. and that's totally what happens, you know? Yeah, that's a great read. I want yeah. to talk a little bit about life, too, because um, I think there you can make a kind of a comparison between it. Uh, do you want to run down the plot?
0: Sure. Um, so, Sanada plays Sho Murakami, who's a pilot and systems engineer for the International Space Station. He's part of a six-man crew that retrieves cells from a Mars probe that, when awoken, they initially reveal that there was alien life on Mars, and so Earth names it Calvin. As soon as Calvin is big enough, uh, he proves incredibly aggressive
1: life is really solid you know it didn't get either the absolute critic or audience love of something like Alien or Sunshine or Interstellar because it's, it's fairly derivative of those movies and certainly takes less risks than those films but what it does do is pursue this great sci-fi idea and manages to craft pretty solid genre thrills that lasts for a bit like a tight 95 minutes around it and it's not the story itself but that the idea that a group of scientists want to discover a new form of life on another planet because they think if if they do it will help fill in the blanks of why life exists at all i don't think it's a surprise that the movie is called life like hugh the character in the wheelchair and head scientist says like because of calvin we're gonna learn so much about life its origin its nature maybe even its meaning and they do they are confronted with this very nihilistic and maybe truthful Mm. distillation of life in the form of Calvin, (laughs) in that life is destruction. Life is predator and prey. Life is that for one species to survive, another has to die. It's death. And whether or not you agree with that, it's a take. And it's, it's a very scary idea and is woven well throughout the movie. The whole point of Gyllenhaal's character, he's been in mm. space the longest because he was a war doctor and has seen at the worst of humanity. He doesn't want to go back down because he knows what life is. And I think Sonata here is a bit like Michelle Yeoh in Sunshine in that mm. like, he has one thing in Sunshine Yeoh loved the garden of the spaceship that was her connection yeah. to Earth and when that was destroyed she turned very cruel and you know, early on we see Sonata witnessing his wife giving birth to his child over Skype and him sharing the news with his colleagues and, you know, it's very cute and warm and, like, Ryan Reynolds asks, like, oh, does anyone know mm. who the father is? And it's ball-busting in a way, like, a real mate would, like, the banter's really yeah. good. But, it, but, it, like, the, but it's also tense, like, that whole scene because, like, you don't put that at the start of your horror for no reason. Like, we know Sanala most likely mm. isn't going to meet that baby. And that, that that's yeah. tense. Like, that's drama. And I think I think the scene yeah. where he's alone in the pod hiding from the alien and he's looking at the picture of his kid and he's telling the photo, like, I'm coming home. And I think he goes to kiss it as the scene sort of fades out. Like, that's quite powerful and tragic, you know, and gives this movie yeah. where you kind of know kind of where it's going. It gives this movie a, a little bit more yeah. of a um, tension. What do you think yeah. of it? I'm curious because we, we haven't talked about it.
0: Um, I do like it. Um, I think it is pretty derivative, but I think I admire its commitment to just going... Just following this kind of... Its nihilistic themes to their like their logical conclusion. I do think that they could have given Sanada more to do. Because his, his character show doesn't get a huge amount of action, and he's relegated to kind of just typing and looking at screens in kind of horror. And I think, yeah, like even... Um, his final scene is mostly out of focus because it's focused instead on um, Jake Gyllenhaal trying to rescue uh, Re- Rebecca Ferguson's character, and I think it's a good comparison between an actor like Sanada, who's mostly in supporting roles in the West, and someone like Gyllenhaal, who's considered like a leading man powerhouse. Like if you cast Jake Gyllenhaal in a movie, your movie is guaranteed to be good. I think is. Like a a rule people have followed for the last ten years, even though it might not be quite be true, and I think I always come back to a line in Pain and Glory, where um, uh, Antonio Banderas tells his actor friend who he's been you know estranged from for twenty years or whatever, he tells him you know the best actors will do their best not to cry, and you know if 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 the tears make it out or not it doesn't matter as long as you know you've made the effort to, uh, you know be real about it. You know that you try, you attempt not to uh, express the emotion, and if the emotion comes out, then great. If not, also great. And I think that's kind of what Senator does best dramatically. I think, and it's come going back to what you said about his role in Mr. Holmes, where he's you know shook up by uh, um, his past that he wants um, Sherlock Holmes to clear up for him. Whereas I think other people, other people like um, like Jake Gyllenhaal will jump from zero to sixty in no time at all, and it definitely works in some movies. But it works really poorly in others. I'm not saying I'm not saying we need to reconsider Jake Gyllenhaal uh, as like a whether he's a great actor or not. But I think uh, we should be a little bit more critical of when he gets bad news. His first instinct is to go to his knees and scream at the sky. Whereas, like you know, a little bit more injecting a little bit more reality into the role would help a lot. Yeah. And I think that's what Sanada does yeah. best.
1: I agree. I the more I do this podcast, the more I'm starting to question like why is this person a star and why is this mm. person a character actor even though they're both great actors and I, I think that's a good summation of one of the reasons that can be all right so then i want to talk about speed racer Sonata's weirdly high build in this movie despite only having two brief scenes where he talks yeah for those who don't know who, speed racer was the Wachowski kind of left field follow-up to the matrix trilogy a, a pg adaptation of a popular anime cartoon about a boy named speed racer who wants to be a speed racer um, the Wachowskis took this plot and I think made it into this fascinating allegory for filmmaking and the importance of not selling out. Because uh, basically Speed at the game of the movie wins a massive race and is approached by the head of Royalton Industries, played by the incredible, incredible Roger Allum. I talked about him in the Tamara Drew episode, but he's amazing in this too, who is like, come work for me, you'll get the best treatment, the best training, the best equipment, anything you want, it's yours. And Speed's like, you know, my dad's John Goodman, you know, his name is Pops. He's all I need, but I appreciate your offer. And Wilton said, so, like, I'm going to give you the hard sell. Everything is fake. You know, racing is, racing is rigged. That race your chatted hero won, that was rigged so that this certain player would come last. His company stock would go down and I could buy shares in that company for cheap. You know, you can't win on your own. If you want to keep racing, you have to work for me. And uh, again, children watching this are like, oh, very interesting. Oh, the stock market. Oh, everything is uh, oh, predetermined. <laughs> interesting. But like, I think it's very interesting if you know about the Wacuse's career. Like, they started as screenwriters and had some negative experiences working within the industry on that movie Assassins with Antonio Banderas and Sylvester Stallone. That was a script that they wrote and it sort of was rewritten and they got a credit on it, but they weren't happy with the finished product. And uh, this was before they yeah. made their amazing erotic thriller Bound and then used whatever cachet they got from making that to go all in on the matrix and which they struck really big but it was like a labor of love for them and although it was made with a big studio they were very protective of it and they they tried to make it in as uncompromised a way as possible and it ended up being one of the biggest and best films of all time and i think with that in mind it's hard not to read this film as a bit of a cautionary tale urging people not to sell out not to sacrifice their artistry for financial gain to trust their vision above all else and with speed spoiler alert you know, winning the Grand Prix at the end despite all the dirty tricks where Alton tries to play in him I think that's the way because he's right, making the Matrix you know And if you have any doubt mm. that racing is a stand-in for the artistic process like there's a scene where um, Susan Sarandon's mom says these lines of dialogue to Speed which made me cry she's like Speed when I watch you do some of the things you do I feel like I'm watching someone paint or make music I go to the races to watch you make art and it's beautiful and inspiring and everything that art should be so there's all this stuff which is like you know surprisingly intelligent for a movie called Speed Racer But then also from, like, an editing and visual standpoint, like, the movie is breathtaking. Like, um, I don't even know how they did it, but this is the closest to a live-action anime I think we'll ever get. Because I think, as well, you'd probably know about this better than I would. But they they managed to master that thing they do in anime where a character will be recounting something that happened to them in the past, like, in the foreground of the shot. But the background will change Mm -hmm. to that past event while the character is still talking in the present, and it's very fluid. Um, They they replicate that perfectly in the movie. And, like... It's it's incredible. And they do have these like amazing whip pans where the scene won't cut, it'll just slide sideways to the next scene to mimic again that like fluidity of anime. Like, and it's it's wild yeah. looking. And I, I think while some of the mingling of live action and CGI may not hold up it doesn't really matter because it's like Mario Kart, the movie, you know? Like, it's it's yeah, never striving yeah. for authenticity. It's kind of like what a kid's version of driving <laughs> must feel like, you know, when you're going... <laughs> and, like, also the bright colours are so popping and expressionistic. And it has this ending where speed is driving so fast so that the... The red and white checkered point to mark the end of the race just melts, and the screen becomes this like two thousand and one esque vortex of sensory overload, which <laughs> captures like the ecstasy and the catharsis of that moment. Like it's it's insane stuff, and I just um, I think it, like the movie has been quite reevaluated, but I do feel like there is still this idea when you talk about the Wachowskis, like oh they made one matrix movie and then the rest of it uh, they never kind of recaptured that magic but I, I think all the stuff they've done really since the matrix is really interesting and uh it just watching speed Racer made me so excited yeah. for um the matrix 4 which i know uh, one of them is directing solo if it's anything like as ambitious as the work that they've been doing since the matrix i'll love it i'm not sure uh, the majority of the public will you know <laughs> just on the topic of sonata and speed racer you know is like another one of the people who are manipulating stuff behind the scenes and he has one or two th- scenes with Roger Allen where they're talking about kind of like shadowy dealings. I think the most interesting thing I can say about his inclusion in the film is that the Wachowskis are some of the only filmmakers I can think of whose casts have always been or at least since the Matrix sequels very global and inclusive and they, love, mm. they cast people of every race, colour, ethnicity in their films. Speed racers, Japanese actors, Koreans, Chinese people, Australians, Germans, all in major supporting roles and never comments on their nationality which is really cool and it feels very uncynical it's not like big movies where it's like oh we need a massive chinese star and he has to have one action scene so we can put them on the poster in his territory it's more like we love international cinema and like if we love an actor we'll write them a role and just colorblind class like we love that and like i think they took that to the it's logical end point with sense eight where it was literally about eight people all across the world who shared like one consciousness and was incredible television yeah, yeah, yeah. that just felt like it had no borders. Like there, was, it was nowhere it couldn't go. Yeah, just Sonata of being a part of that is really cool. Yeah, we would just chat a little bit about his next few movies, uh, Army of the Dead.
0: Uh, I can't say I'm sold on it. I think I'll watch it just because it has of the dead, and you know, I think Zack action operating outside of the superhero mold. It's all. It's always at least interesting, if not necessarily good. Uh, he's in Mortal Kombat. I don't. I
1: don't know what character he's playing. Do you? Do you know much about Mortal Kombat?
0: yes he's playing scorpion one of the most famous ones who is a his character's name will be hanzo hisashi he's like a an assassin who was killed in like 16th century japan and then is brought back as a spirit as like a vengeful fire spirit in the modern world and he's his enemy is uh, sub zero who is an ice ninja warrior of the lin kuei who uh, is played by joe Taslim of the raves and fast seven fame it looks great
1: and then a bullet train. Like five assassins find themselves on a Japanese bullet train, realizing that their individual assignments are not unrelated to the others. Brad Pitt and Lady Gaga star. <laughs> great, give me that. Aaron Taylor Johnson plays a character called Tangerine. Okay, sure. All right. Um, yeah. yeah, that's gonna be great. And um, yeah, just still sixty, and just still like still kicking ass and taking names, making content. You know, I love it. <laughs> Yeah, just a uh, rate review and subscribe wherever you get our podcast. Email us at I face pod at gmail.com if you'd like to be on the show or you have something you'd like us to cover. Follow us at Twitter at I know the face p one. Follow us on Instagram at, at I follow us on Facebook at I Face Pod. Thanks Charlene Fernandez uh, for editing and running our socials. Andrew, where can people find more of your work?
0: You can find me at the Headstuff Gaming section where we talk about what we play, why we play and how we play it.
1: Also, in some exciting news, I was recently hired as a staff writer at show.e so check out my work there. Uh, I'm loving the job so far. Thank you, Andrew, for the whoop. If you listen to our show and you like it, consider signing up to Headstuff Plus and donating €5 euro a month. You'll unlock special bonus episodes of the show, four of which are available now. We ju- we did a little check back in on Lakeith Stanfield with uh, a review of Judas and the Back Messiah, and you talked about A, a Nightmare Wakes yeah those bonus episodes are around 20 minutes each it's us a little more loose just talking about stuff we like although you know in the future what we'll, we'll be doing um other tangential actor series we want to do the stars for rent one you were thinking of one about actors who've been in westerns you we were thinking about kind of maybe tackling like a-list stars and maybe like the what's your favorite brad pitt movie might be stuff like that coming down the line so do you know sign up for those who have signed up i want to thank you and um, i hope you enjoyed the episodes see you later cinephiles bye bye